Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for this week's episode of the Sabbath School Commentary. The lesson for this week is entitled Worship in Education. And I want to talk just for a minute before I jump into this week's lesson about the fact that there is an, educa- there is an education to be gained through worshiping God. The first time the word worship is used in all of the Bible, it's in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham has been instructed by God to take his son to Mount Moriah and to there offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord. And when Abraham gets ready to go and to do what God has commanded him to do, he says that he's going to go and worship the Lord. And so Abraham decides that he's going to be obedient and he's going to give God what God has required. And he calls that, he defines that as an act of worship. So worship involves sacrifice and surrender and obedience to God's command. Now, for the few people who are listening to this commentary who are unfamiliar with the theology behind the story, we know those of us who are familiar with scripture, that Abraham never supposed that he was going to be killing his son and having his son like just be dead. Uh, God had promised Abraham that his son, Isaac, was the promised one through whom he would bless the world. So the word of God said to Abraham, Isaac is the one through whom I will bless the world. Therefore, Isaac has to live. And now, in Genesis 22, the word of God comes to Abraham and says, take Isaac, your son, your only son, to the place where I command you and offer him there as a sacrifice to me. So the word of God says he's the promised one, but the word of God also says you need to sacrifice him and take his life on the hill and offer him there on my behalf so that I can test whether or not you are radically committed to my word, and if you are willing to trust me. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us some insight on what was going through Abraham's mind. It says in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants will be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So, the Bible is clear. Abraham believed that Isaac was going to be raised from the dead, and he thought that because God had promised that he was the one who God would bless the world through. And so therefore he had to have children and he hadn't yet had children. And so he knew then that God's test was going to involve him killing his son and then God raising his son from the dead. He did not think he was making his son a sacrifice that would be offered in a similar fashion to the pagans. Some people mistake that in this passage. Um, So now in John chapter eight, when Jesus is having a disagreement with the Pharisaical leaders in his day about his messiahship. He he makes an interesting statement. 
about Abraham and about Abraham's understanding of the gospel. Notice this, it's found in John chapter 8. I want to read something to you guys that Jesus says in one of his really tense uh, arguments, and you can call it a debate or discussion, with the religious leaders of his day. Jesus says in John 8 and verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Do you remember back there in Hebrews 11, where the author of Hebrews says that he received Isaac back as a type or as a symbol? And here now Jesus is saying, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Well, there may be a lot of different ways that Abraham saw Jesus' day, but one way we know for sure that he saw Jesus' day is when he obeyed the word of God and he went up to the mountain to sacrifice his son, his only son. But when he got there, God stopped him from having to do that and said, I will provide myself as a lamb. And so he saw in type and in figure the coming Savior of the world. And that coming Savior was prefigured through his own son and through the act of obedience that he performed there on Mount Moriah. So we see that through his willingness to sacrifice, his willingness to obey, his willingness to worship God, Abraham was educated. Abraham was taught by God. So if I want to be educated by God, if I want to be taught by God, well then I've got to be willing to obey Him and surrender to Him and offer Him the sacrifice that He's asking of me. Uh, my mind goes to Romans chapter 12 where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's interesting, hey? So we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, and Paul says that this is a spiritual act of worship. Just as Abraham was educated through worshiping God, God educates us through worshiping Him. There's a couple of passages that you could put together here, and I'm just going to reference for just vague. I'm not going to give you a reference, but just mention the passages. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To fear the Lord is to hate evil in every sinful way. The Christian crucifies the flesh with its affections and lusts. So as I surrender myself to God and to His Spirit, and allow the Spirit to mortify the deeds of the flesh, well then, I'm dying, I'm, I'm sacrificing, I'm offering myself to God, and I'm, I'm, I'm being, how do you say, given the gift of repentance, and hating sin, and fearing God, and that's the beginning of wisdom. That's when my mind is opened, my heart is opened. And uh, Jesus said something powerful in John 7 and verse 17, He who will know, he who would do the will of God, will know the teaching. So to do the will of God like Abraham is an act of worship. And then you'll know. God will teach you uh, as you worship Him. This week's lesson 
points to the fact that in the Bible, uh, there is both examples of false worship and true worship. And since we as humans are innately worshipful, we're inclined to worship by nature, that we're going to end up worshiping something. Uh, things, people, relationships, or God, one or the other. And this week's lesson points to Daniel chapter 3 and, and how there on the plains of Dura, the Hebrew boys were tested by God. And so the king of Babylon set up a test of loyalty to, for the sake of all of his leaders, all of his, the Bible says, satraps and princes and nobility from all over the land. And so they're all gathered together. And a herald cries out to all of the people that as soon as they hear all kinds of music being played, that they are to bow down and worship the image to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this is a really interesting, uh, really interesting story. And it correlates directly with Revelation chapter 13, and I'll talk about that in just half a second. So we're in Daniel chapter 3, and the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who in Daniel 2, Daniel says, you are represented in prophecy by this head of gold. He is called his leaders to this test. Now, I want you to think in your minds of Daniel chapter 2 in this great metal image with a head of gold, which represents the Neo-Babylonian empire of Nebuchadnezzar. So he's the head of gold. In Daniel chapter 7, there is a companion prophecy. There's not a great metal statue. There are four beasts that arise up out of the sea. The statue in Daniel 2 has four different metals. It's composed of four different metals that all represent different kingdoms. Daniel chapter 7, you see the four beasts that come up out of the water. Those beasts represent four different kingdoms as well. And so these are, this, this is, these are companion prophecies. And Daniel, the book of Daniel, operates on the principle of repeat and enlarge. And so Daniel 7 repeats the same, it covers the same ground as Daniel 2, and then it enlarges upon the ground that Daniel 2 covers. And so if the head of gold represents the Babylonian empire of Nebuchadnezzar, so does the beast, one of those beasts, it's the first beast, the lion that's depicted in Daniel chapter 7 coming up out of the sea with wings that was made to stand up on its feet like a man. So the kingdom of Babylon is represented by a golden head and also a lion or a beast. Okay, in Daniel chapter 3, you see a great golden image set up by Nebuchadnezzar. Obviously, him making that whole image of gold represented him rejecting, at that, at that time at least, rejecting God's prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 where he's the head of gold, but after him arises another kingdom inferior to his that will take over his kingdom. And so for some reason, you know, he's, he's feeling insecure, he's feeling jealous for his power, and he's created this test of loyalty. William Shea, a Seventh-day Adventist biblical scholar who wrote a book called Daniel, a reader's guide. He did a lot of study of the archaeological research that's been done on Babylon, and he discovered that there had been a revolt under Nebuchadnezzar, and a cuneiform tablet was found where Nebuchadnezzar had to, he describes how he had to physically fight himself with his guard, people who had assaulted him, 
to take his life. And so William Shea proposes the idea that what we see in Daniel 3 is a reaction to that, where Nebuchadnezzar wants to know who's loyal and who's not. And so Daniel had predicted, after you is going to rise another kingdom inferior to yours. Daniel 3, he has a great golden statue. He's just got the gold. And then um, he's telling everyone to worship as a sign of allegiance to him. The music is going to play. It's going to signal to everyone that they need to start to worship. Now, I mentioned to you guys a bit about Daniel 2 and Babylon being represented as the head of gold and Daniel 7, Babylon being represented as the beast or the lion. So, Daniel 3, you've got the nation, Babylon, or the beast, Babylon, and then you've got an image on the plains of Dura. So, you've got an image that's to the beast. It and you worshiping that image to the beast is going to show the beast that you're loyal to the beast and the beast will then and therefore not kill you and throw you into the fire. So the penalty for not worshiping this great image that Nebuchadnezzar set up is that you're going to be killed. Now, for those of you guys who are familiar with Revelation 13, this is, is striking you as, as very familiar to what's being communicated in Revelation 13. So there's a beast. There's an image erected to the beast, and the world is called to worship the image of the beast and to receive a mark on their hands or on their foreheads as a sign of allegiance to the beast at the end of time. And it's interesting because the beast there at the end of time is an amalgamated beast that's confused. It's kind of, which in Babel, the word Babel means, you know, to babble, to be a bit confused. Um, and then it says in Revelation 13, 15, that he had power to give breath or life or spirit to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image to the beast, that they should be killed. Okay, it's very, very interesting. So what instigates image worship in Daniel chapter 3 is the all kinds of music. Okay, so there's the enticement of music, it engages with your senses, it, it, draw, it, it draws you in by disarming you, and it's time now to worship. So all kinds of music are played to signal people to the fact that it's time to worship the image of the beast. Now in Revelation 13, there's an image to the beast, and what gives it life, what activates it, what gives it power to function, and cause as many as would not worship it to be killed? Well. Uh, the devil gives it breath, or the Greek word there in Revelation 13 is, is pneuma, which is oftentimes indicated as, translated as breath or spirit. There was an occasion where Jesus breathed on his disciples in John chapter 20, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Spirit. There's life or pneuma or breath given to the image of the beast at the end of time. And it then and therefore could be concluded that it was a false manifestation of the Holy Spirit, which is oftentimes produced by all kinds of music. Uh, so there's a lot of false worship happening where people suppose that they're bringing God what he wants because they're dancing around and shouting and they're having smoke and light shows and all kinds of dazzling Kind of stimulation, but that's not definitionally. That's not that's not worship necessarily. Um, that can be, you know, having. And this is a dicey subject to even talk about because someone's going to think that I'm 
just bagging on contemporary worship styles, but really I'm not. I'm not even talking about worship styles. I'm just simply talking about how when you create an environment around yourself that just dazzles your senses, that can trick you into thinking that you're worshiping God uh, when you're really not. And that can entice you to worship false systems of religion. It can make what's perverse and grotesque seem really, really great and beautiful. So bowing down to and praying to some great piece of metal, like that's just terrible, like that's horrible. Uh, we are children of the king of the universe who has forbidden every form of idolatry. Uh, why? Because it's beneath human dignity to worship a thing, a thing, or to even, you know, to, to shape an image of God or what we think God is, is like, and then worship that. That's that, worshiping yourself, worshiping metal, worshiping false concepts and ideas. That's beneath human dignity. We are made in the image of God, and it's a sin, and it's evil, and it's terrible. But people can be drawn to worshiping really grotesque ideas and concepts of God because of the enticing environment that's created by those who are promoting that false worship and those false beliefs. Think of the Church of the Middle Ages. You have these grand and magnificent cathedrals that dazzle the senses. I've been to England. I've been to Austria. I've been to Germany. I've been to Prague. I've been to Poland. And I've seen the great cathedrals. I've seen them and I've walked through them. And they're beautiful and amazing and awesome. But what were the doctrines of the church at the time? Just think about it. Purgatory, the intercession of the saints, the iconography, the idol worship, the, the, the twisted concepts of punishment and hell, the notions of determinism and predestination that emanated originally from early church fathers, Aquinas and, and others. So, like, the teaching was grotesque and twisted, and it inspired really, really crazy, terrible behavior. Yet, the system of worship was just so beautiful. The music, the environment, it was dazzling. It was disorienting. It, it made you feel like, wow, I should be worshiping what these people tell me to worship, the God that these people tell me to worship, even though the picture of God created through those doctrines and teachings was monstrous. The same happens at the end of time. You have false concepts of God being taught through many, many churches, uh, false doctrines, false teachings. They are idolatry. False concepts of God are idolatry. Think about what idolatry is. It, it was, it's basically a human being projecting their ideas of what God is onto a physical thing and then shaping it into that image and then worshiping it. The same can be done with ideas about God, like doctrines and teachings, how God behaves, how God functions, how we're supposed to relate to him, how he relates to us. If, if, you, if, you, if you worship false concepts of God, you are worshiping an idol. It just hasn't yet been projected onto a physical thing. And so you see in Revelation 13 happening around the world what happened in Daniel chapter 3. And we need to be careful of that. Worship is giving ourselves to God, sacrificing ourselves for God. It's not creating an environment around ourselves that makes us feel like it's perfectly fine to believe all kinds of twisted and bizarre things about God. 
that just come from man's ideas. For the sake of time, we really only have opportunity now to focus on one other passage of scripture that the lesson brings out, and it's in Thursday's lesson, and it talks about idolatry in education. And the lesson points our attention to Mark chapter 7. And in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples eating with unclean or unwashed hands. And they're miffed, they're upset, and they criticize him. And so you know, the Jewish nation at the time had the tradition of cleansing their hands, cleaning their hands before they ate, not because they desired clean hands for the sake of like being sanitary. This is not a sanitary requirement. They were doing this as a way to distinguish themselves from pagan people. So you may be interacting with people in the Gentile world and their sin can get on you, so to speak. And so you wash your hands before you eat. So in case you've shaken one of their hands or touched one of them, the sin that's on them because they're unclean does not get inside of you. This is the basic understanding. And so, okay, I don't think that there would be anything wrong with the Jews having a policy to say, hey, let's wash our hands because we want to, before we eat, uh, remember that God has chosen us for a specific purpose. I'm trying to be gracious here to these guys and just make the point that you can make a policy, you can, you could practice a tradition, but when you begin to relate to that policy or that tradition, as if it's like a thus saith the Lord, when it's not a thus saith the Lord, you're deciding that you are the Lord, you are God, because you're setting up your commandments, your traditions, and you're imposing them on others as if that's God's word. And that's a problem, like that's an issue. And Jesus resists their critique. He doesn't concede at all to their criticism. And when they say to him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? They're, they're saying, hey, what kind of Messiah figure are you? Your followers don't even line themselves up with what our elders are doing. I mean, this is how we do it here. This is how we do it in this country. I mean, this is, you know, Australia. This is how we do it here. I mean, you know, don't, wouldn't you teach your disciples to do what we do here? I'm just saying that not to be insulting to Australia. I, I love Australia. But to bring the point close to home, what's in the Bible is in the Bible for us. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So what you're bringing to me as an offering, your behavior, your actions, are not what I've required. This is what you have invented. And since this is what you have invented, you're worshiping me in vain. You're not even worshiping me at all because you're not adhering to what I've said to do. You're creating your own rules, your own way you've set up, and you're following your own path. And so don't, don't make pretense of religion. Uh, you're not worshiping me. And then he gives them this really interesting example of 
how it's hypocritical to, to they're, how they're violating the fifth commandment and by giving money to the temple. Okay, so this day's lesson Thursday is idolatry of education. Okay, it's interesting. These religious leaders were highly educated. Highly educated. It's arguable, they're arguably the most educated men on the planet. Copious amounts of scripture memorized. I mean, just years of intense study and of, of careful scrutiny of the scriptures. And, uh, you know, here, here they are making up their own rules and condemning Jesus for violating their policy, even though their policy had nothing, no, there was no moral necessity to keeping their policy. So we've got to really be careful about this in our own lives and in our churches. I don't condemn these guys, and I don't think that God condemned these guys for having certain traditions and, and whatnot. And God doesn't condemn us for having certain, certain policies. What is a policy other than a formalized tradition or a codified tradition, a written down tradition? It's what we all agree we're just going to do. And many times our policies, in most cases, almost all cases, our policies reflect biblical principles. And they're good. But our policies themselves are not the Word of God. They may be expressions or practical applications of the Word of God that fit in certain circumstances and don't fit in others. So we've got to make sure that we interpret and relate to policy correctly. We don't turn policy or our written tradition into God. There's a lot of examples I could, I could, I could come up with to highlight this point, but I guess one would be, say, uh, a policy in a church, in a local church, that says we, as a rule, have people up at the front of the church who we know are spirit-filled, born again, repentant in Jesus' name, Seventh-day Adventist believers, right? That's just the way that it's going to go. That's our policy. And the reason why is because that's, a, that's holy ground. And we always want to remember that's holy ground. And, and we don't, like the Pharisees, think that Gentiles are unclean. And if you don't believe what we believe, you can't come up on our stage. That's not, that's not it. But we want spirit-filled, born-again people speaking from the front because we don't want speaking from the front associated with just common and lowly, you know, superficial stuff. Whatever. I'm just making up an example. You may think that's a bad policy or a good policy. Who cares? That's not my point in bringing it up. I'm just trying to make an example here. Okay, so, guy comes into the church. Here's a powerful sermon. He's drunk, he's dirty, he's nasty, he's stinky. And he falls on his knees in the midst of the church and cries and weeps and, and comes up to the front for an altar call and says, Pastor, I need to say a few things. And so he starts to speak and testify and share and communicate and it's beautiful and everyone's blessed and ecstatic and then all of a sudden there's one person in the pew and that person is like oh they can't be speaking up the front that we have a rule here that says no speaking up the front unless you're an elder or a church member yeah you see so that person is 
not relating to policy the right way. There's a lot of lot of other examples I could I could come up with, not as politically correct as that one. I could, but I'm just going to do it just to be a bit crazy. It's really important that people are trained correctly uh, in in ministry, and that we don't just become irresponsible when it comes to ordaining people in ministry. So we have academic programs, we have training programs where we send people to theology school, which is really great and important and wonderful. But, and that's a policy, that's a general policy, and that's a good general policy. But this is a policy that we have made that reflects a biblical principle, and the biblical principle studied to show yourself approved to God, a, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. And further to that, you know, Jesus called the twelve to himself so that they could be with him, so he can send them forth to preach, and so that he could give them power to cast out demons. Jesus trained his twelve, and, and we take that seriously. So we train future pastors in, in ministry at, at college settings. That's good, that's fine, that's fantastic. You get a degree, you, then you're now qualified, supposedly, to go pastor. You get an internship and you go pastor. That's a really great thing, that's a really amazing thing. Uh, but there are exceptions to this rule. There are people like Ty Gibson or David Asherick or myself who God calls from the plow, so to speak. Similar to Elisha, Elijah's successor who was called from the plow. Similar to Amos, the prophet of the Old Testament who was called from shepherding. King David was the shepherd. Uh, the New Testament, you have the fishermen disciples. You have Jesus himself as a trademan. Uh, you do have Paul, the great academic, who's a leader, apostle, preacher, church planter, whatever. Um, so you see general principles in Scripture saying that, that you should train, teach, educate, develop correctly uh, people who are going to lead in ministry for sure. Uh, but we've got to be careful that we never create uh, a God out of that policy and presume that God is bound to that because we know God is not bound to that. And ultimately, if we are doing our job and our leaders are teaching our members, then we would expect that God would call from our ranks certain members who are called to lead in ministry as well. The principle of discipleship is Jesus disciples Peter so that Peter can disciple someone else. And the person who Peter disciples is just as discipled as Peter was discipled. That's the whole point. And so if our pastors are educating people the way they were educated, and they're doing a good job at that, they're succeeding at that, then of course you're going to see uh, average ordinary people being educated by God to rise up, to be raised up and, and to lead. Now, don't get lost in all that, you know, I'm just trying to make the point practical in real life. What Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 7, you know, he's, he's, he's just making a simple point. You guys are replacing God's Word with your traditions, and therefore you're worshiping God in vain. And we may not like how close this comes to home. We may not like it, but who cares if we don't like it? The truth is the truth, and we need to let it apply uh, the way it really applies. So anyways, um, so much more that could be said. This Sabbath school lesson is awesome and inspired and great. I hope that you have been blessed by this short amount of time with me. I've been blessed considering these particular passages and also the other uh, 
insights that the lesson brings out. I hope and pray that you have an extraordinary and blessed Sabbath and that you have a wonderful time in Sabbath school class. And if you're a teacher, that God blesses you with the Holy Spirit, who's the only true teacher of divine truth. And I pray that the Holy Spirit empowers what you say and blesses your class and gives you all an amazing, rest-filled, spirit-filled, blessed Sabbath day. Uh, please continue to pray for our departmental ministries here and the Sabbath School Commentary and the other ministries that we provide uh, for the conference membership and the other supports that we, we offer. Um, and we'll do the same for you guys. God bless you. Have a fantastic Sabbath, and we'll see you next week.